news. WTBN Pinellas Park. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Since Jesus Christ and Him alone and just work for you, we're going to honor the first commandment that we need to lovingly but firmly tell others the claims of the gospel that Jesus Christ is the one true God and that apart from him there is no other God nor is there salvation in any other name because he and he alone paid the price for our sin. Although many people today speak extensively about being tolerant of different worldviews, the truth remains that our world is very intolerant of the chief claims of the Bible, namely that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Yet this is the very message that we are obligated to lovingly and boldly declare. This is the key feature of the gospel of Christ, and it is the foundation of the Ten Commandments themselves. It is true that by proclaiming this message we will offend many, but we must not make the God of acceptance and popularity more important in our hearts than the one true God. I want to thank you for joining us for today's broadcast of Verse by Verse. Our teacher is Steve Kreloff, pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We are currently enjoying a series of messages on the Ten Commandments. Pastor Steve began this message on the First Commandment by pointing out that the command to have no other gods before me is quickly dismissed as being old-fashioned and not relevant today. However, as we will hear in this broadcast, the call for believers to elevate the one true God has never been more critical than it is now. Here is Pastor Steve with more. But there is a third truth, a third key truth contained in the first commandment. First of all, all gods are false and therefore they are to be shunned. I think that's absolutely what, what God is saying here. Secondly, Our God is to have no other rivals competing for our affection. That is also what he's saying here. But thirdly, and one that's not a third truth, and one that's not that obvious is this. This commandment is personal. It's personal. And you would not know this just by reading it in in English. Notice at the very beginning of each of the commandments is the word you. You shall. You shall or you shall not. You In the Hebrew language, this is in the singular form of the second person. This is not in the plural form, meaning this, that God is not directing these commands to a people in general. He's directing them to individuals, you. You could put your your name here. In other words, he's directing these commandments to us as personal, personal individuals, not in a general collective sense. You personally shall have no other gods before me. That's extremely important, and I'll tell you why. Because there is always a tendency in human nature to not take this seriously, to think that this is not really for me, it's for somebody else. I hope the person sitting next to me is getting this, because I can think of all kinds of idols in their life. Or I hope that a certain person that I'm thinking of is in church today, because they really need to hear this. And that's why these, the Lord directs these commands to each of us personally, because he knows how easy it is for us to fall into these sins and yet be oblivious to it. And there's no better, no better example of this than what happened to Israel 
the very people who received, who first heard this command. Do you realize that just a, a short while after hearing the command, thou shalt have no other gods beside me, they were worshiping a golden calf. I want to show you this because it's serious, but it's, it's kind of humorous, but it shows you the depravity of human nature. Exodus chapter 32. This is just a little while after. God has given the Ten Commandments, and uh, Moses has gone up into the mountain to receive them on tablet, a tablet of stone. It says in verse 32, or verse um, 1 of, of chapter 32, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron, Aaron was his brother, and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Could you imagine? They just received the, the commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before us, and now they want to have another god. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hands, fashioned it with a graving tool, and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. If there was ever an example of why you should pay attention to these uh, commandments, especially this one, it is, it is the example of the Jewish people. That's like listening to a message like this and going out of this auditorium and being involved in some kind of idolatry. Now, there's more. There's more because Moses, when he came down from the mountain, saw what happened. And by the way, wasn't it just they were, they were having an, a new god? Before them, uh, there was uh, some real immorality taking place in the worship of this golden calf. But Moses confronts Aaron as well. He should have. He was angry and he should have been. Verse 21, then Moses said to Aaron, why or what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself that they're prone to you. What did I do? I mean, in that human nature? You know this people. Now watch this. For they said to me, make a God for us who will go before us for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt. We don't know what has become of him. Now, I want you to see in the next verse how depraved human nature is and how far it will go. Listen to this. I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. You gotta be kidding me. That's what he said. That's what he said. I don't know how it got here. It threw some, some rings in, and this calf is here. And look, it just materialized. Folks, just like Aaron, we have a very difficult time seeing the idols in our own lives. We really do. We we like to think that we have no idols in our lives, but we do have idols, and we are only deceiving ourselves if we don't face them. And so, for the next few minutes, we need to face some of these idols. So we move from the meaning of the first commandment to the applications and implications of this commandment. First of all, in trying to put the, the first commandment in a 21st century setting, there is an obvious religious application and though it may not be politically correct, it is biblically correct. And it is this, the application is this, all the other religions of the world, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and even Judaism, just to name a few, are worshiping different 
gods, false deities, which means they are involved in idolatry. They are involved in idolatry. For example, Allah is not just another name for God. It is not simply a different word that that some people give to God, but it is still the same one true supreme being. That's not true. Allah is a demonic impersonator of the true God. He is not like the God of the Bible in attitude and in action. He is not. So regardless of what name you put on deity, this is not our God. This is not the God of creation. And someday every knee, including Muhammad's and Osama bin Laden's, will bow before Jesus Christ and acknowledge him as Lord to the glory of God the Father. So don't be deceived by the religious tolerance of our day. Anyone who, who embraces a religious system outside of biblical Christianity is an idolater. Is an idolater. Perhaps a well-meaning idolater, perhaps very sincere, but nonetheless an idolater. When Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, he who he must believe that God is, that, that without faith it's impossible to please God, and he who comes to God must believe that he is. The writer doesn't mean that you believe in a general sense that God exists. The writer means that you believe God for who he, reve- who he has revealed himself to be on the pages of Scripture. That's the whole context, faith. As God has revealed himself, that's what God likes. Faith in who he is as he's revealed himself in Scripture. And we need to be very careful about this because there is a subtlety in, in our nation and in, in, even in Christian circles to not realize how this permeates this sort of attitude that says that we will mention God and everything is fine. I recently was reading from World Magazine, Joel Bells, who wrote an editorial, he's the publisher, called Knickknack of Civil Religion. It's a little lengthy, but I want to read it to you. It's very important. And the subtitle is this, Does a pledge to a God that everyone can accept honor the one true God? Now watch this. Listen. With the Supreme Court's decision a few days ago to review the unpopular ruling of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to remove the phrase under God from the Pledge of Allegiance, it's fair to ask, is there a serious Christian in the whole country cheering for the Ninth Circuit Court to be sustained? It's hard to imagine. Secularism, he writes, has a, has a big enough head of steam. It doesn't need still another boost from the Supreme Court. Besides, the folks out in California who started this round of silliness need to be brought up short. I heard Michael uh, Newdow in a debate last year. He's the fellow um, who didn't want his daughter to have to say under God while the pledge was being recited by her class in a public school. So he sued to have the two offensive words removed. In the debate, Dr. Newdow was arrogant, superficial, and wantonly blasphemous. So let me make it clear. I have no sympathy whatsoever with those who are challenging the existing wording in the Pledge of Allegiance. They are obnoxious and wrong. At the same time, I question the time and energy some Christians are spending trying to hang on to such knickknacks of civil religion. I call them knickknacks because they have so little to do with the central task of maintaining the household of biblical Christian faith. Indeed, the issue may even be more serious than that. To point in the general direction of God while failing to say which God we mean and who, we re- and who he really is may be to lead people into the trap of worshiping and developing false confidence in an altogether false God. 
The evidence is overwhelming that from the earliest days of our nation, the God of the Bible has been kept on the sidelines. While it's true that the writers of our founding documents scattered elegant references to God throughout their language, specific history also tells us that they were careful to reject any suggestion that Jesus Christ is that very God. It was not mere forgetfulness or neglect on their part. It was a conscious choice. You get a hint of that when you analyze the otherwise graceful phrase of nature and of nature's God. However much we in our secularist context might appreciate the fact that God gets any mention at all, he is still brought into this sentence rather at the last minute and through the back door. It's as though God is a subset of nature rather than the other way around. Exactly what do we expect the true God to think when we treat him when we trim him down so that he fits some pattern the public insists on. Is the Lord of the universe flattered when we sing God Bless America after having made sure there's no reference in the song to the one the Bible calls King of Kings? It is, after all, a God quite pleasing to the Unitarians that we have installed as part of our national folklore. And it is precisely, he writes, such a false God that Jehovah has in mind when he says in the, in, at the very first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. I just wanted you to hear that because it's very subtle. And we might think that we're really honoring God when in fact we are not necessarily honoring God just because you mention God. You recall that when the Apostle Paul came to the, uh, the city of Athens in his day, the Bible says he was stirred in his heart because of their idolatry. And he saw a statue that said to the unknown God, they were so superstitious, they figured we've covered all of the gods, but we might have missed one. So let's just say he's the unknown God. And Paul preached to them, and Paul was not afraid to tell them that their worship was wrong because it was based on ignorance. And we need to have that same kind of boldness. You may be laughed off of, of, uh, of radio talk shows. You may never get on a cable news network to say that, or if you are, you'll be mocked. But we need to have that same kind of boldness because this is the truth. Paul was not afraid or intimidated to say, you're wrong. And he told them about the, the truth of Jesus Christ. In fact, he said, you've got to repent. You may be religious, but you need to repent of your sin because someday God is going to judge the world through Jesus Christ, whom he raised from the dead. And at that point, they stopped Paul. And some, the Bible says, ridiculed him. They mocked him. And some will do that to us as well. But that's the truth. You see, it is precisely at this point that we need to proclaim Christ, not, not in, a, in a sense in which, well, Christianity is right for me, or, you know, it works in my life. I, I've seen that. I've, I've seen men get on such uh, Christians on such shows as Larry King Live and just absolutely compromise, where it's God in general. It's not God in general. Jesus Christ and him alone and just work for you. We're going to honor the first commandment that we need to lovingly but firmly tell others the claims of the gospel that Jesus Christ is the one true God and that apart from him there is no other God, nor is there salvation in any other name. Because he and he alone paid the price for our sin. And to not do this is to give the impression that there is no, there's no decisive difference between Christianity and all the other religions of the world. Just take your pick. I choose Christianity, but you may have something. That is absolutely wrong. That is, that is a denial of the gospel. The reformer Martin Luther once said these very, very pertinent words. He said, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly, I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages... 
There the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at this point. End of quote. That's a great statement. So honor the Lord by not flinching at this very point. We do not worship a generic God, and we need to speak out and say that. Our God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, and all other religions embrace false gods and deities. Now, on a more personal note, if we are to be obedient to the first commandment to have no other gods other than the Lord, then we must put away every idol that's in our lives. Most of us would not be guilty of consciously bowing down to some idols made of metal or stone or or wood. But listen, that's not all that an idol is. Anything or any person that you are more loyal to than God has become an idol in your life, another God, a rival to our undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, let me just tell you, how? how, because you listen to that and you go, yeah, I know people who are like that. How can you tell what idols are in your life? Let me give you a suggestion. How do you know if there's an idol in your life? Just ask yourself, what would be most difficult for me to give up? What would be most difficult for me to give up? Or what would be a real struggle to give up if God were to tell you to remove it from your life? What would be the most difficult? What would be other things that would be real, real difficult? Let me offer some suggestions. There may be a hobby in your life that you are absolutely in love with, and you wouldn't want to give that up. Might be a certain relationship with another person. It could be a career. Listen, I went to school. I've spent thousands of dollars for this career. I'm not giving it up. Then that's an idol. For men, it could be sex. It could be, for all of us, your health. Well, you know, if you've got your health, it's the most important thing. It's not, that's not the most important thing. Everybody's going to lose their health. It's not making an idol. Your money, certain foods. It's nice to enjoy food. It's wrong to love it. And so I, I couldn't live in another place that didn't serve this. Certain music entertainment. I mean, you can go on and on. If God told you to forsake any of these things in your life, would you do it joyfully? Not kicking and screaming, joyfully. You see, in and of themselves, all these things that I've mentioned are are fine. They're fine, and they have a proper place in our lives, but they become idols when you enjoy them more than you enjoy the Lord, when they become the delights of your life rather than the Lord being the delight of your life. That's when it's an idol. That's when it needs to be dethroned. The New Testament mentions some specific idols that we are prone to love and worship more than God. 2 Timothy 3.4 says that there are some who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I think at, at some time in our lives, we've all had that. Now, that doesn't mean you can't enjoy things. God, the Bible says, has given us all things to enjoy. Just make sure that there's no pleasure in your life that you put ahead of the Lord that you would have a hard time giving up. That that could be uh, any kind of a pleasure, love for a recreational sport. Many times in my life, my dear wife has to tell me, you cross the edge with your running. And you know what? She's absolutely right, and I have to keep dethroning that in my life. She knows when I've crossed the edge. I don't always know that, but she knows first. And, And that's right. That's right. How about the love of being a fan of a sports team? Let me just comment on that for a moment. A few weeks ago, a few weeks ago in our Friday morning men's Bible study, I meet with some men 
uh, very early on Friday mornings. Uh, it was during the World Series, and one of the men, who's not particularly a sports fan, said, have you seen the fanaticism, the passion of those people in the World Series? And I sat there and I thought, yeah, look at them. And later on, I thought, you hypocrite. You absolute hypocrite. There is no one that, that I know who's more passionate about the San Francisco Giants than I am. In fact, my secretary called my office a shrine. I said I prefer to call it a museum, not a shrine. But, but you know what? Um, that is an idol that, uh, that has to be dethroned, and it is. And in preparation for this, I realized that. That's, a, that's an idol. It's not, it doesn't mean you still can't be a fan of a team. It doesn't mean you still can't love a sport. It doesn't mean you can't, you can't enjoy it. It just means that there is a, a point in which you can enjoy it so much that that becomes the focus of life and preoccupies your mind. Even the pleasure derived from a wonderful relationship with other people, can, those can be idols. We, we, we love our spouse, but they can't be an idol. They shouldn't be an idol. It's what happens, and, and often people get mad at God for taking a spouse. Children, we love our children, but they shouldn't be an idol. We shouldn't love them more than the Lord. And relatives and friends, we need to make sure they don't take first place in our lives. And I remind you, the Corinthians sinned by making idols of people. They're spiritual leaders. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, so don't worship any person. Paul also says in Colossians 3, 5, immorality and greed are idols because in pursuing them, we become worshipers of ourselves and, and fleshly appetites. And that's really the bottom line. That's the bottom line of all idolatry. Either we're going to worship the God of Scripture with all of our heart, or else we're going to worship ourselves and the idols we create to make ourselves what? Happy. Happy. It's either we worship the Lord, no other rivals, or, or I become the idol in my life because I want to be happy. So the first commandment is put away anything in your life that competes with God for your adoration and your loyalty. Dethrone anything that rivals God. Let's bow for prayer. Several questions are pertinent to ask at this point. Is Jesus Christ your God? He is God, but is he your God? Have you ever consciously turned from your sin, from whatever idols are in your life, to Christ and him alone to save you? The Bible says the Thessalonians did this. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God, and I urge you to do that. I urge you to turn from your sin. Your sin is about idolatry. You're on the throne. Turn to Christ. He died for sinners. And if you're convicted that you're a sinner, then understand there, there is no other Savior but Christ. Repent and trust him alone for salvation. Now, if you've come to Christ as your God and Savior, then make sure that you have put away all idols in your life. And that's not just a one-time deal. That, I find that that's an ongoing sanctifying process. Can you honestly pray these words? The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Father, may these words really reflect what we mean from our hearts. Lord, make known to us any idols in our lives, people, things, and I pray that you'll help us to not only recognize them as having a place in our lives that they shouldn't have, but help us by your grace to dethrone them, to repent of our sin. May our worship of you be pure. May there be nothing, may there be no one that's more important to us than you. May you be the delight 
of our lives. May you be the true source of, of joy and, and, not, and not the things you give us to enjoy. Father, if there are some here without Christ, I pray that you will make them aware of their need for salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we peel back the layers of how this commandment applies to our lives, we discover that it really is the crux of the Christian's life. Jesus must be our chief source of joy, satisfaction, and provision. Yet our human hearts constantly pursue fulfillment elsewhere. The fact is we struggle to believe that He is truly good enough and God enough to satisfy our souls. May God help us keep Christ as our all in all. If you would like to speak to someone about today's message or you would simply like to know more about the verse-by-verse ministry, we invite you to give us a call, 727-239-0306. Is there any connection between the Ten Commandments and taking a photograph? Well, some people believe that there is. Find out why in our next broadcast of Verse by Verse. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's If you're concerned about